boy needs therapy. Lie down on the couch. Well, I'll go. We'll just go ahead and uh, start where I can introduce you. And um, so I'm here sure. with JF Bear Lane. Am I saying that correctly? Close enough. And normally I kind of maybe over prepare for these, but it's been such a crazy week. I've rescheduled three times and I don't have a ton of structure to the interview, but I think the themes are going to be mythology and poetry because um, you're a, a scholar and a poet and a gentleman. Anything else? Oh, golly. Uh, <laughs> you're too generous. Uh, I think it's really fun because I just want to give a little background. Joel was very kind and he's, when he uh, contacted me. He said, you know, I read your books when I was a kid, which made me feel ancient, of course, and really enjoyed them. And it's so funny because I always spend time discussing my books saying, you know, I wrote them 30 years ago. And this is my OCD side where I say, I found the following errors in them. And it, it's really funny because I got some uh, contact back from people saying, you know, great book, but this was wrong. And I would write back and say, you're absolutely right. And the three examples I give are, I was all excited because the city of Mars, Pennsylvania, I thought, ah, it's named after the Roman god. No, maybe every man named Mars. Uh, <laughs> maybe he was named after the Roman god. <laughs> yeah, it might be. And then the other one I thought was pretty funny was London, the city of London. I don't know where I got this from. I said, oh, it was named after these, the Celtic god, Luke. And about eight people said, all from Britain, of course, said, where did you get that crazy idea? So that was it's another one. It's Londonium, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, I love the Roman river. Name for it. Yeah. But, but yes. And then the third one, which is what the one I, I blush when I admit to, is hetero in Greek of means other, right? But hetaira mm. means a courtesan, and so mm. hetairism, I had read it in a different way, and and what I was saying was the period of hetairism was believed the period of life analogous to the courtesans and i missed that completely went right over my right past my vision but i cannot start an interview without you know confessing <laughs> those three mistakes and somebody well, else well if you feel that way then the rest of your book must be pretty good and i said well i hope so you know <laughs> but i think you know it's always normal to make mistakes when you're compiling anything that's the size of a book but also you know um it's going to be in anything um, but I think what made your books better is that they're not strictly academic. They're about very intelligent concepts, but they're not pretentious. And there isn't that, not not even pretension, but there's an academic type of writing where you yes. can tell that someone is used to somebody behind them being like, oh, you didn't cite your source. How do you know that emotion comes from, a, you know, you know, you're like, okay, just sit with the metaphor for a minute, man. Like, I'm not trying, you know, and then you can tell that there's some people that when they're writing, they're trying to qualify everything and lay out these terms and define what the terms mean and explain why they're there before they tell it, say anything. And it makes the books kind of a miserable read, you know, like academic writing has its purpose, but the purpose is research. It's, it's not, Well, you know, it's funny you should say that because I, all of my, all of the myths I cite in my books, I always have, you know, references in the back of the book. So if someone wants to know, they can look. But what I found most useful is, and this is a result of exactly what you're talking about, <laughs> reading works saying, you know, a lot of people I talk to say, well, you just tell me what the heck this myth is, says. What is the story here? What is the narrative? And, you know, I found that, that people got more out of it. And then what's really interesting is they ask more important questions. And by important questions, I mean, not just about the meaning of the myth, but how the myth informs their sense of meaning. Mm -hmm. And that I thought was a much better approach than being too dry and academic. Uh, and because that, that's kind of where I was trying to take people, I mean, you know that from reading my books, but you know, to, to contemplate and uh, what was it? The uh, Chinese philosopher Moses used to say that, you know, you can't learn anything without self-reflection. Well, when you read a myth, it's got to be like, how does this affect me? What is its sense on my meaning? And I, that's kind of where I was coming from. So, well, I, I plagiarized some of it, I think, in like sixth grade uh, for uh -oh. a sermon because it was like a youth Sunday or whatever, and you had to give the sermon at the Episcopal Church. And I was <laughs> doing something about sitting in the imagery of the Bible or sitting in the imagery of the 
story and he had a chapter about water and you know water showing up in myths and all these facts mm -hmm. about water and i remember <laughs> copying and pasting a lot of lines from that into the well, sermon you know, so it's your words have come from the pulpit too well the statute of limitations is up so i'm not going to bother you <laughs> i didn't make any money off the sermon, uh, so. no there you go that's the whole thing but it's pretty funny though when i hear people have quoted me and so on the most a couple of really funny things before i get into some other my later work and what i've been doing couple of great funny stories to tell is I'm more popular in Brazil than I'm in the United States. <laughs> and I find this totally funny because they sold the Portuguese rights and I speak and read Portuguese. So I got to read the manuscript, which is pretty cool, and make my little, you know, notes and so on. And uh, I started getting calls for interviews with, with uh, outlets in Brazil. And was funny was and they, they knew i spoke portuguese so it was really funny and at one point i think it was I my sales in brazil were higher than they were in the united states and canada <laughs> it happens it happens you hit the east of some other country like uh the japan a lot of times something will blow up there you know 10 years later or something i think it's brazil it's some south american country but there was this show that was like on apt uh, just Alabama public television when i was a kid and it was like a weirder version of Bill Nye, the science guy. It's called Beekman's World. So there'd be a guy that was like in a rat costume and they would do science experiments, but it was right, like actually. real wacky. So for some reason, that is still, you know, no one even remembers it here. For some reason, it's like huge in this <laughs> South American country. It's like still on TV being rerun. And the guy like went to live there because he's basically a celebrity. Like, in this oh, country. I know. It's but it's funny. a show to teach kids science. It's so weird, but it, you know, it spoke to something in the culture. Um, oh, very strange. I love stuff like that, though. That is fun. But yeah, I, well, well, go ahead, sir, please. Well, I guess just so for the listeners to introduce you, um, you know, we've been wanting to talk for a while. So um, probably want to qualify so other people can understand the conversation. You know, I'm a, Therapists now write a lot about myth and psychology and the fusion of those things and, and religion and Jung and um, a lot of that, I think, you know, I was born in 87, but I think it was still in the water from the 70s, the Joseph Campbell stuff. And um, I so I read a lot of like science fiction and fantasy, but I didn't really read a lot of nonfiction. And then it was in fifth or sixth grade and a friend of our family gave me like a gift certificate to the bookstore. So I went and picked your book out because I opened it to this story of the Hindu um, pantheon where um, I don't have the book on me, but one of the one, somebody goes to talk to the God and he's like, how many gods are there? And they're like, well, there's 130. And he's like, yeah, but really how many are they? And they're like, well, they share an aspect. There's really 50. And he's like, no, but really how many are there? And he's like, well, there's three. It's like, well, how many are there? And it's like, okay, fine. You got me. It's really, I'm in all of them. <laughs> like there's really just one, you know? And it was like, and I started thinking about, the way that religion there's a universalness to it but then there's also something that's very like culturally unique and then it's this people are talking about basically their life and their existence in a unique voice but they're all describing the same thing even though i don't really like the comparative religion trope that all religions are the same i don't think that's true and it was like just open this door of like what comparative religion was and all this stuff and i started getting into that and i read about mythology and all these things forever and people would always be like, well, Joel likes history. So he's reading these stories. And it's like, it's not history. It's psychology, you know, like, oh, um, yeah. and, but it was, no one really got that. And it really opened a door. So um, it's exciting to talk to you now and, and see. Uh, so what brought you to wanting to write about mythology and doing those books? We, we have them in our professional library at work and we let patients and uh, clinicians borrow them. I tried to grab right. both of them and they were both checked out. <laughs> so right. know, hopefully we'll get them back. Um, so I, well, but, that's a great introduction. Uh, I, I've always been a, a person who loved to read stories. I was a kind of a, I guess you'd say, hmm, introverted, introspective kid. And I remember one time my parents, uh, I think they wanted to shut me up. So they said, let's give this kid a book and he'll leave us alone. And the book was a mythology book. And I got into it. And that's probably about, I would say, oh, 10 or 11. And it was a mythology for children. And it was Greek and Roman mythology and some Norse. And uh, then they, I said, this is really good stuff. You know, my grandparents then said, oh, that's my grandparents said, oh, this is the birth of an intellectual experience for this child. So they decided that they would festoon me with books. 
which all of which I read. And then when I was in college and taking a course, I had a wonderful professor. And this guy and I, the late, I'll give a shout out to the late Theodore Ludwig. And this guy and I could talk for hours about mythology. And he was a fascinating guy. He was a Lutheran pastor and a theologian and a scholar of mythology and all these things. And he said, you know what you need to do? You need to go, <laughs> you need to get a copy of The Golden Bough by Fraser mm -hmm. and go sit on the beach sometime, just read. And I did that. And then it was the whole obsession I had with how, what are the common things that make us tick? All mm -hmm. human beings have stuff that makes them tick. And mythology kind of was a record of that search for meaning and what makes us tick and a reflection of it at the same time, if that makes some sense. And so I thought that was really interesting. And so I just continued to read and everything else in my my uh, addiction to languages and it also helped me out because I was able to then look at some, you know, even some primary sources with uh, three dictionaries and a magnifying glass. So you don't think mm -hmm. I'm that clever. Uh, and how many languages do you speak? You were speaking like in three or four different languages when we were on the phone telling a story about going to South America. Oh, what, how many languages are you fluent in? Enough. Uh, you know, I'm picking up English pretty well. Uh, <laughs> but actually, my latest thing is is Turkish. I really enjoy it. It's not in the wow. European. We've made three trips to Turkey. I have, I'm going to give a shout out to my wonderful Turkish teacher in Istanbul, Seda Sirel. And, uh, and you know, and you can watch all those great Turkish soap operas and understand them now without subtitles, which which is great. And by the way, if you want to talk about archetypes, okay, I'm going to tell you, <laughs> if you want to know what an archetype is, I will use Turkish drama as a way to explain what archetypes are. Every Turkish drama has the kindly and innocent uh, young lady who is being abused by a wrathful father and or mother. And then there's always the sweet old lady who's the cleaning woman but knows all of their dirty secrets. And then there's always the dashing but poor young man who's the hero. And there's always some vile, vile, rich, spoiled brat kid and his rotten parents. And a Disney movie. Oh, it's, it is. It's like, you know, Hallmark, uh, all that stuff. Well, it's so funny is if you know someone were to ask me what is an archetype, I'd say, watch a Turkish drama, or actually probably any soap opera, and you find the same type of characters. And I said, really, that is what goes on in myth. You've got very much this, these archetypes, and where do they come from? Well, Jung tells us that they're images in our collective unconscious, uh, but it's they occur everywhere. They're fascinating because they occur in every culture, and mm -hmm. that, that was another thing that fascinated me in reading the myths that they. You know, some of the plots even, I get one of one of my books, I, I say there's a Blackfoot American Indian story that matches to an Egyptian story. I mean, that matches to a Bible story, but the Bible story and the Egyptian story, yeah, they were neighbors, right? But mm -hmm. the Blackfoot are out in the middle of the uh, North America, and it's just all of the material is there. And Levi Strauss and the structuralists, they they love that stuff. But mm -hmm. but I always felt that it's a sense of meaning is what that's about that we all human beings you know we're in this time now where people are all tribal and mm -hmm. they, they don't necessarily well, they're still fighting about myths you know they're fighting I was about say, they don't share myths yeah. common myth and they don't see the commonality of other people's myths or the commonality of other people and you know this creates strife and all stuff and, and i of course, you know, and as as you do, we try to lessen others' suffering and try to make life a little better for people. And that's one of the things I think you can do through the study of myth is you start saying, ah, I am, I have cultural differences, but the me, what makes me tick is a lot like every other person out there in this world. And that will change how I view and treat other people. Well, it's interesting with the, the, doing a podcast that's kind of rooted in brain-based medicine and depth psychology is like Jungian, the Jungian stuff and the depth psychology, like it informs everything. So it's like it we've does. talked to musicians and architects and urban planners. A guy reached out after our urban planner documentary and he was like, or after our urban planning uh, interview with Andre Strani, somebody sent me their manuscript that now is getting published, which is, I'm proud of him. Maybe he'll be on here one day, but he had written a book about using Jung and mysticism to do urban planning, like how to find the archetypes of the, 
way that people want to interact with the design space. So it's oh, and, yeah. And all this, oh, there's a lot of things in in Jungianism that are just everyday life. You just say, "Aha, that's it." I'm not going to get into a long discussion, but I mean, there's archetypalism, but also animus anima, the shadow, all these things mm-hmm. you see manifested, and and you more than I, I'm sure, but you see it manifested all over the place, and they kind of help you navigate a little bit. Mm-hmm. I feel. Well, it's a lens that lets you understand yourself and other people in a way that is gentler, I think. And you can navigate the... and you can navigate life better, I think. Yeah. You know, navigate with that sense of meaning that I think everything boils down to. When so you started reading mythology as a kid, did you ever get into psychology or you stayed myth? I mean, what did your academic or, or what did your track look like as a as a <laughs> I know, won't professional really enough? I really you don't want to go into it. Okay. Too much because now I'm working in a consulting firm. We uh, <laughs> manage uh, contracts for companies to visit with the federal government. But I went into political science and economics, mm. and I was teaching as an adjunct in the Washington semester program at uh, American University. And I used to tell people my night job was mythology that I, you know, uh, read and did so many things. And I've had a couple of people who are true scholars, which I didn't claim to be, in the field contact me and they said, you know, we, we like your book or we're interested in your ideas. So on. I said, well, I'm going to tell you, I, I don't have pretension to be, you know, a, a great deep scholar of the topic. I would say rather I'm a really, really interested amateur. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm a really very uh, emotionally engaged reader of mythology. And one of the people I talked to uh, actually was a, a chair of religions at a university said to me, yeah, but you know what you're talking about. And I thought that was pretty funny. That kind of mm. made my day. Uh, so, yeah, that was my trajectory. My trajectory wasn't the usual. And as far as psychology goes, I don't think you can study mythology without bumping against psychology every step of the way. You know? I think mm-hmm. that's good. Uh, and the sense of meaning. I, I, I'm, you know, you hear me say it over and over again. But I think that so much is important about having, human beings having a sense of meaning. And navigating their way through life. I think that's the issue. And I think a lot of things that used to give us a sense of meaning and hope are going away in the world. You know, even the younger generations, you know, there's polls and they don't even think the planet will be around for their kids in the same capacity that it is now. Or that the the economic system will allow them to have any, their kids to have any kind of semblance of life like we have. And not saying that's true or false, you know, but that that's a belief, you know, that people who grew up with an iPhone, you know, think before they're, you know, 13, they are already sitting with this pretty dark existential stuff. And when you see that in therapy, it's like the generational difference used to be 10 years apart. Now it's like when I see somebody 25 and somebody 19, the difference is vast, you know, the way that they see the world. Well, and I, I agree with you. And I also find fascinating all this, you know, the, fascinated with apocalyptic stuff like zombie mm-hmm. stuff and all that and you know and i've had conversations with very intelligent rational people who said you know uh, <laughs> zombie apocalypse is strange and probably is very obviously fiction but that type of apocalyptic thing is not so crazy and they really think that and then when covid came out i remember a number of people younger people especially saying to me well you know this is life imitating art we've had all these movies like outbreak and all this stuff and and here we are with this and you know is there going well, to that be- whole year was like uh, you know political catastrophe and plague oh, and yeah. fires and yeah know, i know when you know brimstone and yeah. food famine like it was just like the biblical <laughs> yeah that was my uh, comment always when when did the locusts show up you know yeah. but yeah but i mean but you talked I'm, I'm still an optimist but i'm old you know that, that kind mm. of works. But I also think that, you know, one thing when you get old is you've, you've survived so many train wrecks that you say, I wouldn't worry about this too much. But uh, well, well, I think it's a combination of things are probably not sustainable. There is going to be a change at some point. And kids just have access to information where they were able I to agree. ask that question at six to Google, whereas most people get to college and they're like, whoa, whoa, what if nothing means anything? You know, that's the first time they encounter Nietzsche or anything is, you know, in their, in their 20s. And now kids are sitting with that stuff at five which is they're probably yes lot. they're deprived of the uh, pleasure of ignorance that uh, <laughs> others have enjoyed 
And I, as to say, when you talk to a seven-year-old who sounds like Schopenhauer, that's very, very <laughs> sobering. Mm. Well, so you, you did you um, ever study Jung or do any Jungian psychology, or were you just kind of a, an interested in myth? And, all of the and above, the, actually. Yeah. All of the above. Uh, Mr. Prolific Reader. Yes. Well, also, the other thing, too, is uh, I actually had a group of friends who uh, had a Jungian reading group. And this is oh, wow. almost 40 years ago. And that was really interesting. And I read German, so I was another reason to read Jung. And and unlike Freud, Jung is readable in German. Uh, Freud, mm -hmm. Freud hurts my brain when I read try reading him in German. But Jung I can get through pretty easily. And and, and it's interesting because I like when he discusses his trips, like his trips among the American Indians and describes uh, his experiences with them and so forth, and how their mythology informs their sense of meaning and how they navigate through life. And, and I think that that's something that I'm still obsessed with. And mm -hmm. uh, my poetry, you know, reflects that as well. That, uh, but I always feel like life is hard enough, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, and I'm sure you feel the same way. If you can somehow help people navigate through life, you're making your own life meaningful. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the job that I have now, just being able to sit with patients. I don't like the the business part is kind of a means to an end just to make sure other people can work and we can build a clinic, but I don't live for that. I live for just sitting in a room with people and um, helping them make meaning even when you can't make meaning. So, yeah, that's true. And, and present, work, but... work always interrupted my gardening and poetry writing. It's just a shame. And winemaking. I was not interrupted, you know. And you make wine? Yeah, of course. And uh, I got to do that. That's good for your you got we live in texas and we have grapes i mean what's wrong with you know it's all good stuff. Oh, yeah. so yeah i mean it, it's but it is it's, I, i've always felt uh most useful thing we can do is help other people navigate through life and so I guess the way i would put it in and mythology is bait is built to help people navigate through life i mean my second it's book, an attempt to make meaning you know yeah my second book living myths like each stage of your life has has a myth that this got a myth of some culture or many cultures that help you to navigate that phase of your life. Mm -hmm. So, well, and I think I know you've read them, uh, but just for the listeners, in case anyone's not familiar, the Iliada Marchea did uh, Sacred and the Profane, which is a pretty early book about um, <clears throat> study of religion and mythology. One of the things he did was, uh, you know, he would find these Aboriginal tribes that had a stick, and the whole history of the tribe is written on the stick, and then oh, the yeah. stick is the the tent pole of your tent and and then in the morning it falls in a direction and then you go where the stick tells you to go and, uh, and the great world axis that's what yeah and it's so well so that's what was making their meaning you know and if the stick pointed to a river oh great the stick wanted us to have water thank you stick if it goes to a mountain oh it's a holy mountain thank you stick i appreciate it and he would talk to the tribes where the stick would have been lost in a flood or stolen by an enemy or something and the people would just wander and die like they had no ability to make meaning out of without well, a stick and how but many I mean, it, the, and how many primal, people do we encounter right yeah i think that's the problem it's we've we've lost our stick or we're fighting about which stick the sticks say to go different directions but i mean that's the primal myth is it's just this is order and this is chaos and somebody goes from order into chaos and then turns the chaos into order you know that's the yeah. primal myth and you know you can get into all the archetypes that make that process more complicated but, but that's what, all it is it's what psychology is it's what religion is and it's what myth is well look at and look at hindu mythology too right it's like you know things are going to be created they're going to decay and they're going to be destroyed you can't get around it and but it'll happen again and again and again and i always tell people i say you know that's a very uh pessimistic worldview I said, is it really not really <laughs> not really it's a realistic point of view that you know i've been reading well, and, and that everything is a dream that the you know vishnu is dreaming everything into existence yeah. but eventually when Krishna wakes up he, they'll just be gone we're just a, we're just a, well you know the chinese philosopher zhuangzi uh okay i don't know had, I, i'm just i'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you no go I ahead just, i just like stimulated the zhuangzi <laughs> story Zhuangzi had this thing called Zhuangzi's butterfly. And Martin Heidegger thought this was the coolest thing ever. Okay, he thought this was very exciting. And which Zhuangzi said, 
I woke up from a dream where I was a butterfly and I was, you know, flitting about from flower to flower and getting nectar and all this happy stuff. And then I woke up and I was Zhuangzi again. And he said, you know, huh, am I a butterfly that dreams about Zhuangzi or am I Zhuangzi who dreams about being a butterfly? And I just love that story. And then he yeah. said, yeah, he said, you know, it was fun being a butterfly. You know, and I, I'm like, I just like the way he said that, though. It's like, you know, and Martin Heidegger thought that was a great story. He was a big fan of that story. It's probably challenging to some of Heidegger's stuff, too, because he was all that language is the house of being and, you know, you're trapped oh, yeah. with cognition. So if you're a butterfly and you don't have language and you still exist, what are you, you know? Sein und unsein. Und sein. Yeah, he was a happy guy. Yeah, it's been a long time since my Heidegger classes at Swanee. Uh, yeah, being, like, yes, being in time is not a fun read in English. No. <laughs> like, uh, unsein. Unsein. Anyway, <laughs> this sounds so awful in German. Anyway, uh, actually, I'm a great fan, though, Carl Jaspers in that group. Because he was a great fan of myth. And he was the man who came up with the idea of the axial age. And all these religious, great religious thinkers emerged around the world. Uh, somewhat simultaneously. And, you know, some, I think, did inform each other and some did not. But he's a great one for, for saying, you know, he never took a Jungian tack, but he was a great one, though, for saying that, you know, it's all about meaning. People have got, like you said about this, the, the stick, it's all about meaning. Everything everybody wants to do is about finding meaning and navigating life. Mm-hmm. And that uh, you can tell people what to expect in life, but until they experience it, they don't know how to navigate it. That's very. Well, and it, our order making, I mean, I think part of the contradiction of human nature is our order making principle, you know, our ego that is the organizing principle of the psyche is what not stops us from making meaning because we cling to it and too rigidly. And so we have to dissolve it and then go under the ego and under language even into the body and the emotional and the transcendental space. Absolutely. And that is how we come back from the descent, you know, like Campbell says in the hero's journey or Jung says with the shadow to, we come back with a greater meaning from the, but we can't quite take all of the information from that place with us, you know, well, because it, Tillich, it is too, like Tillich's view that yeah. the whole process of life is finding the God behind God. In other words, mm -hmm. What you think of as God is going to be shattered by what God is in reality to you in the next phase. And mm -hmm. I always like that that thought that, that Tilly had about that because but it doesn't stop that the reality of God continues it. to unfold as you as you know it and as you grow. Right, and it's the reality of self as well. Uh, well, and I think that's the problem with a lot of different models of psychology is that they're perfectly fine if you're here, you know. So if you're like coming out of recovery or if you're 21 and you're, you broke up with your boyfriend for the first time in college or if this, you know, they're, they're fine with helping you with that. But, you know, 10, 20 years of cognitive behavioral therapy, I, I you know, I, I can't imagine you know, you'd be doing the same thing. No. Um, like, what is it? Ir Irvin Yalom's the existential philosopher, the existential psychologist. And he would always kind of poke fun at the cognitive people that um, don't really do anything other than uh, ego management strategies, which are, which is fine, you know, but it was always like, I mean, when CBT therapists get sick, why do they come see me? Why don't they go to another CBT therapist if it's so great? <laughs> and, it's, you know, and it's a script, you know, you're, you're, if the client says this, then you say this is manualizable. And because it's manualizable, you already know how it works. So there's no point in going to see one. And then there's a lot of people too who say they do CBT. Um, but then when you sit with them in therapy or you, you work with them, they're really doing more of an attachment existential thing, you know. They figured out, you know. So. Oh, physician, heal thyself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great well, stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, all these metaphors for mythology, I mean, it's that I think that's one of the biggest things is it can kind of take part of psychology. The thing that is challenging is you got to take people outside of their experience to make them kind of doubt their assumptions, but that is threatening. So, you have to do that in a way that doesn't make somebody defensive. And mythology is a great way to do that because you're taking somebody and you're being like, Hey, this is what's going on with you, but you're not saying that. You're being like, you know, there was this centaur, Chiron, and he could heal everybody, but he had this wound that he couldn't heal. But I think the reason that he could heal everyone is because he was in such pain. And then the person's like, oh, holy shit, that's me. Oh, my God. You know, oh, he was, I, you, and Chiron was a centaur of attention. Oh, oh, oh. He was a what? The centaur of attention. Oh, what do you mean there? 
the center of attention. I was trying to make okay. a bad pun. Okay, gotcha. I'm the you know, when you the voice to, chemical, though. When you have to explain a joke, it's not that good a joke, <laughs> Sorry. Right? My, the, the audio kind of dipped for a minute, and I thought and I was just missing. I thought the noise canceling was mushing but, You know, what's really interesting is when I talk to young people, especially, and they're talking about Game of Thrones, I just kind of sit <laughs> back and grin because, hey, I can give you Games of Thrones uh, mythology <laughs> from here till, you know, mm. heck won't have it, right? Because it's so much of so much of uh and i really what, what martin wrote in game of thrones is really brilliant but it's all mm -hmm. very mythologically based and all of the themes and archetypes and even episodes are mythologically based and why does that resonate well you and i know why it resonates because this is a, their own human journey and you know they're they're seeing things uh seeing conflict and seeing issues that uh, that maybe not play obviously in the, in the warrior stance of their daily life but they play in their daily life all of those things you know betrayal and loyalty and victory and defeat and failure and success and ambition and, and not ambition. realizing that you're the bad guy you yeah know, exactly being, being identifying with your own victimhood and suffering that you don't realize that you're victimizing others you know yes and scuttling yourself you know and that's what i always think is really interesting is you know uh, telling a person the most painful things you ever tell the other human being is, you know what you're doing is scuttling yourself, but it's true, and it's, it's it's a great theme in the mythology in mythology that, you know, the hero is just blindly rushing ahead, and his vulnerability is obvious to all of us watching him, but everyone but him, and then you say you know that it speaks to the human tendency to be not introspective enough to see where you're going to scuttle yourself. You know, mm -hmm. I thought that was very interesting. I mean, uh, the Achilles. Can you parse what you mean by scuttle there uh, for the listener? Oh, I'm sorry. Like you scuttle a ship, like you, yeah. you cause the sink. You mm -hmm. know, uh, I'm sorry. I didn't. I'm I'm used to that term. Thank you. Yeah, let just make sure everyone can understand. I mean, we feel oh, like the enemy you, is out here, but really, the thing defeating us is inside. You trip yourself. That's right. You trip yourself. You defeat. I, I don't want to use the word defeat yourself because that's a little bit too too final. final. Yeah. But you you trip yourself. You uh <laughs> you 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 set yourself back through choices you've made that you are not seeing the fact that those choices will set you back. <clears throat> have, have you ever read Neil Gaiman? You ever read him? Oh yeah. Yeah, I read a lot of Neil Gaiman in high school. You look and... behind me on the shelves, you will see much Neil Gaiman. I always felt like he was a more interesting thinker than a writer. Like his writing is kind of in service of the idea, not the idea in service of the writing, which I like. I like stuff. I get really bored when it's like I, people will probably be up in arms, but like something like Lolita, like I just, I have a hard time going through because it's so well done, but it's just kind of this character thing and you're reinforcing the theme. And like, I want super rich, you know, density of ideas and in, in the things. And, and Gaiman's not the best writer. At least he wasn't. Um, with the American Gods era, he was kind of shifting from comics to that. But Ocean at the End of the Lane, I really think is like a perfect book. It's like that's the book he was trying to write for 10 years. That's so funny. And I, I've always thought of him as a great narrator. He was a, he was a narrative guy. Yeah. You know, that, He's a structured guy. Yeah, structured. You know what I mean? That, how would I put it? <clears throat> Who would you rather have at the coffee pot? Him or Vladimir Nabokov, the guy who wrote Lolita? I would take game in any day uh, yeah. because I think he is, how do I put it? He's very astute. He is very attuned and intuitive to human beings that would make them tick. And that's why mm. I have always liked him. I always like Robert Graves for that reason because yeah. he was very good in saying, you know, here's what it happened that myth. Now, hmm, what does that make you think about? Hmm? Mm. What does that remind you of? That was like, he doesn't say it in so many words, but he leads you to that point like, well, now what does that remind you of? And I love that because mm. it's like somebody said to me, why in the heck are you reading mythology? That stuff is dead. That stuff's old. It's like, oh, here, let's open a myth. And I didn't mm. read the book. And let's read it. Who does that remind you of? Does that ring a bell? And it always does. Well, in in the in ocean and the end of the lane, kind of what we were talking about, that making order out of chaos and that all psychology is this descent to let go of what we think we are to become what we really are and accept change and all that. And I, there, there's like a metaphor towards the end of that book where 
the narrator's talking about going into the ocean and they're like, as they are dissolving in the ocean, they're like, I am able to understand how everything works. I'm able to see from all perspectives. I'm able to understand. I see everything so clearly, but that can't fit into a person. And if you stay there, you become nothing. You yeah, become everything, but you become good. nothing because exactly you dissolve, true. you know. And look at the Bhagavad Gita, Gita with Arjuna and Krishna's conversation. <clears throat> it's like if you do what you think you're supposed to do, you're going to be doing exactly the wrong thing. And if you do what you're supposed to do, it's going to break your heart. And I always thought that was just the most brilliant analysis of human life, right? Well, and then um, uh, the Bhagavad Gita, uh, my, that's one of my favorite lines is that, behold, I have become time, even without your sword, all these warriors will turn into dust and die. Yep. He's trying, he's the, the book, if anyone, it's a, it's a Hindu religious book, but um vishnu is trying to convince a prince to go into a battle and fight and the prince is trying to navel gaze and not do it and well he's, he's also showing him, i meant to kill my relatives that's the yeah <clears throat> he's he's trying to avoid you know this complicated decision and he says you know well look i've become time even without your sword all these people will turn to dust and die even if you do nothing you, yeah and the other thing i, I always like that too is arjuna is the uh for the audience's perspective in the story it's part of a greater thing called the Marabata, Mahabharata, mm -hmm. which is a Hindu epic. And it's the segment of where Arjuna, the charioteer, is about to go into battle against his cousins. And it's the epic battle of good and evil. But some are good and some are evil and some are a little bit more good than evil. And there's a little bit more going on there. And uh, Krishna shows up and says, you know, You've got to do something. This is your duty, okay? You are. This is your dharma. This is what you were made to do. And the guy's like, nah, I don't want to do this. this here are the reasons why. Mm -hmm. and it's a great discussion because like every human being goes through that. Well, it's not really about war or not war. It's about the way that we make decisions and make meaning. I mean, so oh, many yeah, of the of people who are citing um, the Bhagavad Gita, like Gandhi, they're they're citing it as a work of arguing for peace and it arguing for nonviolence, but the whole the text is a war. debate about a guy yeah. needs to go fight a war against his family. But the context is where it, what leads to the point you just made, which is, and regardless of who wins this war, you're all going to be gone. Victory is your victory is not that is not that big a deal. And there are no winners in, in time. No, and it's it, this is how it is. And I love reading the Bhagavad Gita. I read it many 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 times in fact on my bedstead i've got a bible and i have uh, gandhi's translation of the bhagavad gita because he has all these like, little commentaries in there in the in the margins of well here's what i think was in arjuna's mind here's mm -hmm. what krishna was trying to tell him mm -hmm. it was written his uh his translation was written for businessmen and people who really didn't weren't sanskrit scholars but really needed, needed to read the bhagavad he thought so <clears throat> it's my favorite version that I have. Well, I mean, I think we've kind of answered the question about why mythology is important to uh, study and, and why it's a part of psychology. Um, what about poetry? I mean, that's the other half of the stuff that you do. You're a poet now. You've got a blog about poetry. Do you publish poems uh, on uh, print or do you just do them on the web? I'm doing it on the blog now and I'm in the process of doing some in print. I'm also in the process of translating my poetry to Turkish. Uh, which is that's my little intellectual exercise to keep me keep my old brain uh, cells working but i've had a really good response to the website and i encourage people of course to look at it and also make comments uh and we'll link to it in the in the show notes sure and you know one of the things i i put in there by the way is uh the critics were somewhat right is what i say because i address the issue of criticism and how when you are doing anything uh, like writing or painting or thinking, that there's criticism and, and how do you take constructive criticism? And in retrospect, you realize that a lot of the criticism, whatever the person's motive, is useful, is very mm -hmm. useful and helps you to think. And you can say, yeah, well, his or her uh, you know, motive was terrible. They were just, just didn't like me. Okay, but maybe they said something you may want to consider. Mm -hmm. And that was one topic I've done. But I try to do things that I think I listen to people and I try to do things that help them navigate, right? And it's somewhat informed by mythology, somewhat informed by 
introspection and philosophy. And a couple of the poems that are really popular, I, I mean, if I may, I'll read them for you. Oh, that, that would be wonderful. I'd love for you to read some. Oh, thanks. Well, the one that is most popular and written is uh, Unselfing. <clears throat> and there's a prologue to it where Trand Russell uses the term unselfing to describe the practice of going outside your, yourself, your needs, and your present situation to connect with others and with things greater than oneself. Hmm, I should say yourself. I realize an inconsistency there. In Russell's case, the wonders of science, mathematics, and the universe. This led to a meditation on unselfing. For Christians, it seems particularly appropriate during Lent, which is now. And I also think it's very fitting for Ramadans, uh, or for Muslims in Ramadan. <clears throat> so I'll read it for you. Myself is me. Imagine myself as a hot air balloon with many heavy rocks attached to it by ropes, anchoring it firmly to the ground. The balloon is my spirit, and the rocks are my own concerns, needs, wishes, worries, desires, preoccupa preoccupations, preconceived notions, prejudices, fears, and worries about things that will never happen. If I am in this balloon and look down, that is all I see. I look up for however I see the infinite sky. And I know that if I cut the ropes to these rocks weighing me down, the balloon will soar and I will see new panoramas. I will see others. I will see the place I had been from a loftier height and see just how small it is. Unself, cut the ropes to your own petty concerns and soar. Move higher towards visions beyond myself, toward things greater than the self where I am. My spirit will rise beyond the self that weighs me down. And as I rise and soar, what was once large becomes small. My heart expands beyond me to embrace others. And what was small in my spirit becomes greater as it rises. That was beautiful. That was, thank you. That was fun. I enjoyed it. I do my writing of poems. It's, I'm going to tell you, this is kind of fun. Early, early in the morning when I first get up, I think... I ponder, I meditate, I read things, and I make little notes, right? And I do that one day, and the poem usually gets written <laughs> a day or two later because I then end up uh, arguing with myself, saying, that's not what you want to say. That's kind of stupid. Or that's, I really, that sounds awfully, uh, you know, Vaseline on the lens, uh, hallmarky, so don't do that. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> so that's how these things come out. Another one I'm going to read is one of my most popular ones. I've seen gotten good uh, feedback on. It's called, What Does It Matter to Me? And I'm going to warn you up front. It's very straightforward. Not a lot of, of uh, metaphor to work through or anything. It starts with a quote, If you feel pain, you are alive. If you feel another's pain, you're human. But Leo Tolstoy. What does, and guess what this is inspired by, by the way. I'll let you hear the whole poem go, oh, yeah, I get it. What does it matter to me when there's a war on the other side of the earth? Very sad, quite tragic. Sorry to hear about that. But it isn't my war. What does it matter when there's an earthquake on the other side of the earth that kills as many people as live in most small towns? Tragic. I feel sorry for them. What a shame. Should I buy a hot tub? We really should install track lighting in the dining room. Why does what does it matter that a child is hungry on the other end of the earth? After all, people shouldn't have so many children. Well, it matters, I suppose, really, but they always have problems there. If it's on the other side of the world, I really can't see it. So it doesn't exist, it doesn't matter. Or does it matter? It isn't my problem. If it appears on the screen, I can change the channel and relax by watching a zombie apocalypse. <clears throat> The human condition is so tragic, but it's not my condition. Well, perhaps that's the real tragedy, because they're humans, and then there's me. My indifference means that I'm not human, but some other kind of creature. But if I see the things I'd rather not see, it will make me human, and then those things will matter to me. The empty stomach of a child will become the emptiness of my heart. The empty hand of another will matter when it touches my hand. And fullness of soul is when other souls matter. Beauty of face is not an expensive cream, but in seeing the beauty of another human face in our eyes. And the best defense against aging 
is a maturity that is so young that it sees itself in a hungry child. And you both matter a little more. And you both are undeniably human. Perhaps human evolution means becoming more human. And the discovery of the amount of room in the human heart is our next great discovery. Wow, that is, um, there, there is a complexity to that. That is very affecting. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Appreciate the kind words. <clears throat> yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't seen that one on your blog. Is that an older one? Uh, oh, yeah, it's ancient, February 11th. <clears throat> it's an old timer. Uh, would you like another one, or then am I going to get bore you? No, no, please. And and say the website, too, so we can, um, oh, yeah. people can make sure they can find you everywhere that you are. Very hard to find. It's jfbeerline.com. But now, since my name is not quite phonetic in English, it's B I E R L E I N. And uh, absolutely, and and since I'm a great lover of gardening and wine, I planted I planted lots of grapes, and I wrote a poem about it called "Dormant." <laughs> I just love that word. Does it sound awful? Dormant. I planted gra some grapes and was warned that they looked dead, but they're merely dormant. Sure enough, beneath that appearance. I nicked a vine with my jackknife and saw green inside. But the right combination of sun, rain, and warm soil, and it will spring to life, send out shoots, and eventually yield fat, juicy grapes. I will drink that wine for many years to come. It would have been easy to declare the vines dead. By all appearances, they were gone. What a waste that would have been. There have been dormant times in my life and yours. Things seem dead, inert, even sterile completely devoid of any growth. In these times of anxiety and fear, I had to reach deep inside myself to find that speck of green. It seems that nothing would bear fruit, and that one is at a dead end. Others may have decided that you were finished and done, but you weren't. It appears so to them, but if you know there's still that green alive in you, with the right combination of hope, faith, and the warm soil of the heart, you too will sprout out and reach out your branches. You have no idea of the fruit you'll bear. You have no idea of what fine things will come with the years. Learn the magic, that the magic of dormancy is not death, but the staging for magnificent things. And learn the, the mystery of seasons in our life and the hope arising that seasons change. None of the seasons last, but we can. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. I was at the garden somewhere and write some more poems, huh? Yeah, I need to. Um, you, you do audio recordings of any of them? Sometimes, like, it's. Uh, we're noticing that younger generations, like, if I recommend books or something, like, they, they won't do it unless it's uh, recorded. But, you know, well, like, uh, the Audible seems to be boosting everyone's well, sales. Well, I think we'll have to do this. We'll have to do this and, and credit Joel Blackstock on his excellent suggestion. I think that's a great idea. Uh, Audible publishing is pretty easy. You just you need a nice mic. You can read it yourself and just upload it. And then if it sells, they send you a cut of it. Uh, Amazon does. Well, all right. Well, we'll investigate that, Joel. I mean, actually, I will pick your brain at another time and we'll figure it out the next track. Yeah, it, it's funny. <laughs> a lot of people who have aspiring writers have sent emails and, and I've told them that or or current writers. Um, but if you got books that haven't sold for a while or something, it, you know, they're not highly circulated. You can just go back and either pay somebody you know 200 bucks to record the book uh with uh, on fiverr or something one of those huh. contractor sites or you just read it yourself and upload it and uh people looking for an audiobook they have the audible subscription will start doing it and it, it will it old classics are getting rediscovered that way and also too i mean if any of your patients have issues with insomnia i can read it'll help mm -hmm. so it can help you ever, you ever read pin warren robert pin warren oh yeah i love robert pin warren his stuff is very hard to find like in nashville my friend lived in nashville and so there were all these he would go to all these antique stores and used book places and we had all these books and then throughout the years some of them got lost and i was like well i'll just order another copy and it's like you can't find a I've ton of his poetry anthologies of modern quote unquote and i say in quote unquote american <laughs> verse that my mom bought in like 1958 or something and i still have that thing and i've got it all marked up and it's got post-it notes and 
coffee stains, and I think tears. <laughs> I think it's got all the works in there. And that book contains a number of his poems. I think A Way to Love God and Waiting are two of my favorite ones. Oh, they're lovely. I I, I also, I'm a big, big fan of, uh, well, T.S. Eliot. I'm a big fan of T.S. Eliot. I'm also a great fan of uh, Frost. I know Frost has become kind of like overly popular, but Frost is very good for navigating. Well, and, and overly romanticized. I mean, a lot of his stuff is a lot bleaker than people will let it be. You know, oh, they don't sit with the, you know, and... Well, you know what you know the story about him waking his daughter up at night. You familiar with that? I don't know that story. He he was drinking whiskey and he went and got his daughter up with his gun and was like, "Come downstairs," and kept like holding the gun and being like, "Who you love more, me or your mom?" <laughs> drinking whiskey until she was like, "No, Dad, I can't choose." And then the sun came up and he got tired and he finally went to bed. But it's just like he was not a well guy. Well, I kind of changed a few things. I'm gonna have to go back and do some revisiting of Frost. Uh, that came from my poetry professor at Swan. He said, "Oh, he said you see that happen firsthand." I've never heard that before, but that is. <laughs> well, I'm well, letting you know. Wyatt Prunty was the professor who taught uh, poetry to me, and he was Swanee, so he had known. He knew a lot of things about poets, especially the Southern agrarians and the oh, Inklings, yeah. that were not common knowledge because he knew people who had seen it. He knew they, people. So yeah. he knew the dirt on the people. So it's like would be at Swanee and he'd be like, Oh, that's the balance that's the balcony that Alan Tate held this other poet off because and he said he was gonna drop him if he didn't recount all the women he'd slept with, and then all the women left the party, and then it turned into this huge rager, and then this other poem was composed. I don't even remember all the stories, but it was just like, you know, things you can't Google because they were first or second hand accounts. And of these guys is, you hear these things and boy you feel very well adjusted you know i always get a kick out of that i hear the string go really <laughs> that's, that's something that's pretty uh <clears throat> that's pretty edgy behind the flowery language you know is this yeah. insanity or what is pinworn was really good friends with uh what's his name who's the guy that wrote um De deliverance oh um, Dickie. not dicky yeah i was gonna say duffy and that's wrong that was and and Dicky. I think Dicky was stalking at Swanee, like right before he died of alcohol. Well, Dicky was Dicky had a had a rough life. Dicky was yeah. horribly. Golly, you're talking about people with depression. Dicky was on the top of that list. You know, he was pretty serious. I'm trying to think who else it was. I just finished reading. Oh. The the Joel Cohen is super into you know the Cohen brothers. He loves existentialism and Spinoza and all this stuff. And he spent a really long time trying to get the James Dickey book made. He's got, there's a script of Joel Cohen adapting a, a, a James Dickey book, which is really interesting. Spinoza's best quote that I like to, I tell everyone when I have a chance is, what Peter says about Paul tells you more about Peter than it does about Paul. That is from Spinoza, believe it or not. I always thought that was a brilliant quote. Well, um, and, and the thing I like about Pin Warren is his books, uh, are kind of poems and his poetry is kind of prose it is. and that's why i'd ask you because you were reading something that was just a series of statements that was not overly ornate that turns into just by this the way that these simple statements are arranged this beautiful thing and but would kind of do that where he's just being like oh you know the way that sheep chew grass and their eyes watch the sky and, yes yes and I, I know what you're saying and 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 pen warren has a very nice way of lulling you into this happy place and then biting you you know what i mean it's like oh yeah it's like you lulled into well this is a pretty bucolic image and all of a sudden boom mm -hmm. <laughs> something something nasty hits that's that uh, in waiting it's like I, you think i speak in riddles but i don't yeah exactly <laughs> the world means nothing but itself oh. it's lovely i'm glad you enjoyed that poem and i'm glad you enjoyed poetry it's wonderful and my wife likes to, I, I think I've never seen her roll her eyes harder than when our daughter, our first child, was taking her first step. And she was like, oh, my gosh. And Violet stood up and walked. And uh -huh. I like, recited the the Ovid, the, the animals must cast their gaze upon the grass to trod, but humankind can stand erect to avert its eyes to God. <laughs> she was just like, oh, <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> she was not happy. Priceless. Priceless. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man. Um well so you're can you talk about the transition from mythology to poetry, you know? It, so, so much you, of you're, what we know as mythology was poetry or is poetry. Sure, uh, sure. Uh, but 
you know, the, the greatest thing you, you I always tell people is they say, well, what's the difference between mythology and poetry? And I'll say, well, go see Ovid. Go see Heshit. Go see Homer. Go mm -hmm. see the writers of the Mahabharata. Go see these guys. Look at them. It's all poetry. It was recited as poetry. Mm -hmm. uh, the epics, the recited epics, they all are poetry. And poetry's always been the way of conveyance of the elements of meaning. Well, in pre-writing, that was how you would memorize it. You know, if somebody told the story, you could change stuff. But if I, you know, somebody else could invent a new thing. But if every end of the line rhymes with the next thing and there's a meter, then you can't change it. You got to you know, memorize. You know, what's funny is people immediately recognize poetry as separate from prose or basic narrative instantly. It's almost like they don't even know if they have to be taught. It's a, a fascinating thing to me. It's I think there's some innate poetic thing going on with people. And in mythology, it works the same way. It's they, they instinctively know what the story is. They instinctively know that it's not an objective recounting of something. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, I always find fascinating with both poetry and mythology. You have to explain to people the difference from, usually at least, from most sane people, I should say. You don't have to explain the difference from that from normal stated narrative. Mm-hmm. And they know that conveys something different than normal stated narrative. And, uh, you know, a few times I recall talking to people, and I remember years ago thinking, this person's speaking poetically. They don't know they are, but they're speaking poetically. And I would tell them, and say, what do you mean by that? And I would say, you're not speaking in normal narrative. It's not like, you know, we need some coffee creamer. Uh, you're speaking about conveying to me a very con very complicated concept of negotiating our way through human existence in a relatively simple way that i can grasp and that i think is what poetry and mythology do mm -hmm. yeah and I, I think there's something about poetry that when people have kind of a rigid ego when they kind of cling to logic or existential whatever it bothers them you know yeah um <laughs> Yeah, I don't remember, you know, there's certain types of people that if a poem or something is in a book, you know, they start to roll their eyes. And I think it's a lot of why Jung is on the outside, you know, Carl Jung is on the outside of uh, the medical institution and probably always will be is, you know, what is it in school? They said, like, well, you can't be a Jungian because there's no way to objectively disprove it, the theory. The theory isn't valid because there's no way to objectively to disprove it. It's like there's no way to disprove a metaphor. Like it's not a literal psychology. It's, it's yeah, a it wasn't built one. that way. You know, yeah. his book, The Answer to Job, is uh, I always felt was an amazing piece of poetry. Really, you mm -hmm. read the Answer to Job? Mm -hmm. It's very good, and it's it's the problem of misery and why do we suffer mm -hmm. and all these things, and it's very poetic to read. You know, they should go back and read the biblical book of Job and get some new insights out of it. But it tells you about it, the awareness it derives from suffering and that suffering is an important element in navigating one's way through life, that suffering generates values. The uh, last line of the Red Book is thank you for the suffering. Yeah. Oh, I, that's right. I plagiarized, didn't I? Yeah. And suffering generates values. I, I may be wrong there. That's my memory, but yeah. So there. I find I just find that really interesting that you know uh, to look at things that way. And 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 what is tragedy? Tragedy tragedy is a finger wagging form of uh, of wisdom, isn't it? Mm -hmm. What is tragic? What is tragic is meaningful. I always tell people that. What is truly tragic is always meaningful. That sounds like Simone Weil. You you read Simone Weil or any well, of the of course, mystics? of course. But, uh, but they got the publisher perfect. They 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 did the publisher did all this republishing of a bunch of um, Greek plays, and um, the, they would have like historical photographs on the different things. Like for the Agamemnon, it's like Mussolini going into Italy and different things. And, oh yeah. Um, cool. But the for uh, the Antigone, there was just a picture of Simone Weil. Like oh, old, I was like perfect. I mean, that's just a perfect. <laughs> Because there's such a melancholy sadness that you get this person who is so wise, but is also kind of halfway in this world and halfway out. Oh yeah, you know? one of my I mean, one of my worst puns of all time, though I must say, is uh, Euripides. Believe it or not, 
Like you've heard of Ripley's Believe It or Not, but I always yeah, I mean, find okay. it in Ripley's Believe It or Not. <laughs> oh, that's clever. Funny. Oh yeah, that's. I, 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 some people find that tiresome, but it's. Well, I'm gonna I, cut us off in a minute here. We can keep going for a few minutes yet, but uh, I'm gonna. Yeah, you've that. got you've got a meeting coming up, so I, I don't want to keep you past that. But yeah, um, this is more fun. Yeah, well, it's fascinating. I'd love to. We'd love to do a part two or something. Uh, maybe we could do just kind of a poetry reading or something. Um, something well, another thing too is if you're ever in Texas, you know, can drink some of my wine with me. Oh yeah, that'd be wonderful. Um, we uh, we do some work with another clinic down there, and we're thinking they have a thing here. So I might, maybe, maybe at some point. I don't know. Uh, one of my good friends is from there, but I, I don't travel a ton after the kids, and I pretty oh, much yeah. just work and. and listen you have a wonderful day and it's been a joy to talk to you sir yeah thank you so much i really appreciate it let me um stop the recording and then is there anything else that you want to plug that you want uh to talk about people can get your books are the books still for sale on amazon they sure are so parallel myths and and living myths by robert by by, uh jf berlane anything else you say by robert frost yeah (laughs) i don't know why robert was in my head i don't know I swear I never never drink whiskey and use a gun, so I don't think to worry. <laughs> um, let's see. All right, so uh, those books are on Amazon, and then jfbearlane.com. That's j f b i e r l e i n dot com, and we'll link to that uh, in the show notes and in the in the notes on the YouTube. But um, check it out, and thank you so much for right, for making you, time sir. to sit with us. Have-